Right. Okay. So in the last episode, Laura did convince me that long COVID really exists. But how does it make me feel? Disempowered, to be honest. Here's another condition to add to my encyclopedia of heart sink patients. I mean, we don't know why the pandemic occurred. We don't know why long COVID affects certain people. It presents in a hundred different ways. We don't know of a specific cure for it. So why are we even doing an episode on the diagnosis and management of long COVID? Well, I guess the reason is if we don't, I might and we might end up being heart sink clinicians. Hello, it's Munir Adam here and welcome again to Primary Care Now, the podcast for all frontline clinicians working in primary care across the region. This episode is the second in our series covering long COVID, in which we hear from professionals who have been dedicating their time and energy to understanding and helping us understand what long COVID actually means and what we should be doing about it as frontline clinicians. And just to remind you again, they're doing this by webinar as well, and there are links in the description section of the podcast. In the first episode, we talked about what long COVID actually is, who's more likely to get it, what the symptoms are, and also what symptoms it doesn't cause, i.e. the red flags. If you haven't already done so, please do listen to the first episode, then return to this one. One thing we certainly learned last time was that long COVID is so common, and therefore this series is definitely relevant to all of us. As per my introduction, it's very easy to get despondent and negative about it because there's so much we still don't know about it. But that's really no excuse to at least bring us up to scratch with what we do know. And to find that out, we'll be hearing from a GP who's doing a lot more for long COVID than I am. Although after the first episode, at least I believe in it. And we're also going to hear from a consultant respiratory physician and they're going to be introducing themselves in a moment. In return for 20 minutes of your time, you're going to hear the relevance of a positive COVID test. COVID in children and the elderly as well, taking a history, doing an examination, baseline tests, differential diagnosis and management of long COVID, when to refer to a long COVID clinic and current thinking about the role of vaccination. So let's continue our journey. Okay, so hi, uh, my name is Usma, I'm a GP in Barking and Dagenham, and we have Dr. Adam Ainley with us. Adam, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Adam Ainley, I'm one of the respiratory consultants at BHIET, and I'm the clinical lead for the long COVID service at the Trust. Thank you. So we did a webinar um, on long COVID as assessment and management in primary care. So this is just a podcast following that. So just as a recap, I thought it would be nice if we visited, revisited some, some of the points about diagnosing long COVID. Um, what, Adam, what are the most common symptoms um, that you've seen, something we need to be aware of in general practice? Um, so long COVID, as, as you're probably aware, and everyone is now probably aware, has, has many, many, many symptoms that can come associated with it. Um, the data really suggests that the most common symptoms are, are that of fatigue, uh, breathlessness. Um, we see a number of people with myalgia. Um, brain fog symptoms are something that people should be thinking of, um, connected with the same thing, symptoms I've already had. Um, so difficult to recall concentration, forgetfulness. Um, particularly that came associated having had COVID. 
Um, again, other symptoms people may experience are an ongoing anosmia, so a loss of sense of taste and smell or an altered sense of taste and smell. Uh, and people may also experience things like palpitations, um, uh, generalised sort of chest discomfort. Uh, they also may note, um, sometimes we've had some other weird and wonderful symptoms too, um, but often they come associated having had COVID generally. And they normally take a few months to really sort of kick in after you've had the initial acute COVID infection. Um, but yeah, so a lot of symptoms, but generally with a history of having had COVID at some point. Okay, thank you. Um, and I think we don't need a positive um, PCR test to to have long COVID as a diagnosis. Is that correct? No. So the it was it was recommended initially in the in the first sort of iterations of the guideline that came out that having a test or even an antibody result would be helpful to at least solidify someone's exposure to having had COVID. Um, but we don't actually need to have a positive test, and certainly because a number of people never were act, able to access test uh, when the pandemic first began. And now, as we've stopped testing, really, um, people may not have a test. But a very good, clear history of COVID symptoms at sort of the onset of their symptoms or or just before these symptoms all began is something that's really important. So it's very much about the history, really. Are there any particular risk factors that would make somebody more susceptible to long COVID? once they've had the infection? So there's still lots of research going on, actually. And we're, we're certainly seeing that some groups of people seem to be much more affected or they present more commonly than other cohorts. So uh, Germany, uh, female ladies, um, Caucasian ethnicity, um, who are sort of in their 40s to 60s, seem to be the group that we're seeing the most. And the question is, are they most at risk or is it the, the ones that we're seeing? So there's still a lot of work being done in terms of that. doesn't really have much impact upon where you had your COVID. So actually we see most people actually were in the community. Um, so many people were never admitted with their first onset of, of COVID. Um, they were actually managed at home. I think the assumption was first there'd be everyone who was in hospital or hospitalised with their illness who would first present. Actually very much seems to be those who in the community. And it doesn't seem to affect the same people. So those who are more ethnically diverse or more socioeconomically challenged or areas of deprivation, as we had thought. Um, but I think the data is still coming out really about exactly what sort of things put you most at risk. OK, so I think the challenge that I've had is mainly differentiating long COVID from other conditions that may be causing confusion. Uh, what would you um, say? How can we go about it in primary care? So very much for anyone, actually, who is seeing someone who they think might have long COVID. Um, as I've said from the symptoms at the very beginning with the first question, you know, there's a, there's a lot of a lot of symptoms associated with the syndrome and it, they can very much mimic other conditions. So I think it's really important to approach approach everyone with a sort of very much an open mind, really. And the main thing is to exclude any differential diagnosis of those symptoms to ensure that you're not missing something um, more acute, they need much more acute interventions. So, for example, if someone presents with chest pain, you want to make sure they don't have uh, a cardiac event or a history of ischemic disease. 
if they've got fatigue, we generally try and rule out sort of biochemical causes. So if someone's vitamin D deficient, uh, if they've got a thyroid disorder, um, it could there be potentially an anisonian um, episode which is causing their fatigue, for example? Or could they have had something like a, an EBV infection before that's caused their symptoms? So it really is very much about being open and broad and trying to exclude other things. Now, we very rarely seem to see people with one symptom. They might have one predominant symptom, but they normally come along with many, many symptoms as well. So if you have one symptom alone, that would sort of bring alarm bells for me, um, because most people seem to have had all of them or at least a mix of three or four more symptoms. So if someone has just lost their symptoms, taste and smell, I would be concerned there's another cause for that. Or if they were just confused, again, I'd be concerned with that. Um, I think it's 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 tricky, but you have to really do a thorough assessment for almost all the conditions uh, to rule them out, really, because it really is a diagnosis of exclusion rather than anything, and that that I think is what makes it so hard to do. Yes, and I think um, in primary care as a GP, I, I do end up seeing a lot of children and elderly um, patients, and and it's just um, how do we diagnose um, long COVID in them because they don't traditionally present with shortness of breath, cough. Um, so any, any thoughts on that, any hints and tips for us? Certainly for those groups, there's such high stakes in missing something that's acute and we know there are certain treatments for because um, many conditions, so long COVID firstly doesn't have a, a sort of set treatment, there's no set diagnostic test, so um, it really is a diagnosis of exclusion. But actually the things that can cause lots of their symptoms in sort of elderly and kids, there are actually treatments for many conditions that we see with who present on what people present with. So what you really don't want to see is, is someone presenting with sort of an early onset dementia, for example. Um, so if you do the sort of for thorough cognitive assessment, um, consider referring to a memory clinic. But again, if they've just got that one symptom, I'd go down that route first and make sure you've excluded that kind of condition. But if there's a mix of conditions and you've sort of done a basic confusion screen, you've done those basic things to make sure that someone is safe and you're not missing uh, sort of an acute coronary event or an arrhythmia, and it's very reasonable to refer to a COVID service at that point because they've got a syndrome. So actually, we can then take things a bit further, do a few more investigations, be a bit broader with what we can do in secondary care because we have the access. And we've also got the expertise now of seeing people and managing them. So we have a bit more of a feel for what really will be or what won't be. Um, and then in terms of kids, I think, as you said, it's really difficult because... Um, they can certainly present from what I've read in a myriad of ways. But I think as if they're presenting unusually to how they usually behave, um, seems to be obviously the sort of thing that should start ringing alarm bells. But it is again about just really making sure you're not missing an alternate diagnosis because there's such high stakes in managing these people. Okay. Um, would there be any particular baseline examinations or tests that we should be doing in primary care um, just to confirm the diagnosis? or exclude other conditions? So I think in terms of sort of the initial assessment, it, it really was is about just being open to whatever the patient's saying, really. So mostly, but actually they just don't feel heard. So they come with the symptom and actually they're dismissed as, you know, this is just long COVID or, you know, that's not really an issue, don't worry, you'll get on with it. Um, and actually fatigue for some people is, is very debilitating. Um, brain fog for someone who's very high functional even just functioning their job and that no longer can function is very distressing so it's about just being open and, and um, welcoming and then I think it's making sure you try and 
assess not only the symptom and to see sort of work out the history of the symptom so what is the symptom when did it start was it associated with the covid sort of type illness or a confirmed covid illness how long has it been there for what other symptoms have come along with it and then also putting in your sort of rule out question so do you know if they've got chest pain do they have uh, a history of family history of ischemia heart disease do they have loads of risk factors for ischemia heart disease is that sort of a worsening progression of chest pain on exertion so more typical for sort of crescendo angina or angina pain for example and people with covid don't seem to present like that so they they will have this sort of achy discomfort generally all over not really exacerbated by anything necessarily um so that's normally the history that gives you that. But then you'd want to still do an ECG probably. Um, and if they've got big risk factors for a coronary event, then also make sure you've ruled out cardiac event. But if they're generally young and fit, and actually this isn't a sort of uh, a worsening pain, then actually it very much more likely to be something else. And we also want to make sure it can be like a myocarditis. So is there a positional change in their pain? Are there typical changes on ECG, for example? And I don't think there's any harm in running some of these things by sort of rapid access cardiac team, just to make sure. Um, in terms of other things, so it's very much about getting the symptom, um, doing all the things you would normally do for anyone who's breathless or with a cough or myalgia to rule out the alternative sort of so make sure there's no features of connective tissue disorder, um, looking for any underlying respiratory disorders. Um, these things can sometimes be made worse by COVID. So again, it may be that they've had a condition they only had mildly, but now this has been made worse. Um, so it's making sure they don't have asthma, for example, as a new presentation, or their COPD has not been exacerbated, or they've actually developed sort of a polymyalgia, they've been grumbling. So it, thinking of the same ages, really. So if someone is sort of, we see 40 to 56 year olds all the time, and actually it's exactly the same cohort who, who get polymyalgia, for example. So it's trying to make sure you've ruled that out by examination and history. Um, and then not only is it then about talking about the symptom, but it's trying to uh, assess how that has, has, has impacted them. So physically, what can you hear on examination, sort of from head to toe examination really is what we have to do. Mm. Um, it's then getting them to sit and stand if they're not too fatigued. So how many times can they sit and stand from a chair, for example? Or if they can't do that, can they walk around the clinic room and how long can they walk around for how many sort of steps can they do um asking really about how how far they can walk so the mrc score for breathlessness for example will give you a good gauge of how functionally impaired they are from breathlessness um there are sort of fatigue scores so there's something called the yorkshire recovery screen which is a really good tool actually and i would encourage people to at least look at it because it does it does trigger you think if they're presented with a constellation of symptoms, it could be long COVID and it talks you through exactly how to score the severity of them and talk, and you get a general score at the end showing you whether it's likely or not, for example. Um, Post-COVID functional scale score is another tool that's used to sort of look at how you're affected by your symptoms. And then not only the, we're talking about the physical symptoms, you've got to be thinking about people's mood. Um, so do they have any signs of depression? They're using a PHQ-2 score or any uh sort of signs of anxiety with a GAD2 score for example um, and again lots of people are now presenting with trauma symptoms so um just seeing if they've got sort of nightmares disturbed sleep or that kind of thing is really important so it's very much about symptoms uh, history and very very far examination to rule out anything untoward and then doing some screens to assess functionality and then the test because there's no diagnostic test i've said 
it, it's helpful to see if they've had COVID. So COVID antibody would be helpful, for example. Um, if they've had a test in their history, it's helpful to look back and see if they've ever tested positive because that does give you at least an initial steer. And then all the tests we otherwise do are just to, generally to rule out things that can cause the symptoms. So an ECG, a chest X-ray if you're breathless, um, oxygen saturations, a blood pressure. Is there a difference when you sit and you stand? Um, is there a change in your heart rate when you sit and you stand? So showing an orthostatic change. Um, a blood sugar for people who are fatigued and changed in weight or fevers and sweats. Uh, thyroid function if you're fatigued. Um, a CK level if you've got muscle pain, for example, would be very helpful. Um, ESRs, CRPs, um, looking at for signs of anemia, so full blood counts, um, looking at sort of liver function, uh, vitamin D, D B12, folate, ferritin. They all seem to be low in actually quite a lot of our patients. And is that just we're picking them up because we see more people? But actually, we do. We've seen quite a lot of people who are vitamin D, B12, and folate deficient in this cohort, probably more so than in my other respiratory cohorts. But I don't know if that's just because we test more. And then um, they just get more symptoms and um, they get that. Yeah, exactly. yeah. So those things we need to do in terms of testing. It just exacibates it. So, uh, I mean, that brings on to my question about um, how do we uh, decide when to refer to long COVID clinic or who should we be referring to long COVID clinic? So I so if an assessment's been done and I think – uh, the presentation links very much in the sort of timeline of having had a COVID illness. The symptoms have come on since then. You know, uh, most people seem to have the symptoms for at least nine or so months before they get referred because they've just been sort of grumbling on the background trying to work out what it was. Um, I think it's making sure that any acute things have been ruled out first, just so that they're in the right pathway, firstly, is important. I think then functionally assessing them and seeing how functionally impaired they are. Some people don't necessarily need to come to our clinic. So if they've got a bit of mild fatigue that's getting better, they don't all need to be referred. I think it's just ruling out um, an alternate cause firstly that could be treatable. And if they're sort of functioning and it's getting better with time, it's very reasonable to watch and wait for these people. You can give them some simple fatigue advice. So the Primary Occupational Health Society has a very good relief on fatigue management. Um, you can just monitor them and see if it gets better and ask them to keep a fatigue diary. So is the fatigue getting better? Um, if they're breathless, again, if they're very mildly breathless, you rule out anything that causes breathlessness. Again, it's reasonable probably to wait and watch and see if there's nothing else there. Um, it may be that you can provide sort of um, signposting to the, to the BLF website for breathing exercises to see if that helps. And there's quite a lot of um, long COVID self-help resources now on, the, on different websites that could be helpful. Um, and obviously, if they are really debilitated or they just want an opinion and they ruled out anything that is is an alternative cause, then we generally are happy to see anybody, really. Yeah, generally, um, any ethnicity too. So, okay, um, yeah. generally sees one or two cohorts, but of anybody really should be referred if you think it is possible. Um, yeah. But there's two services: an adult and a child's one, obviously. So it's got to be mindful of the age. <laughs> yes, yes, that's right. And um, have you? Uh, would you? Uh, I mean, have you had a lot of queries about uh, patients who are suffering with long COVID about their com uh, about the COVID vaccination? Should they go for it or should they not? I mean. I, I think as a GP, I've been advising everybody should be going for their vaccination regardless of their COVID status. Yeah, no, I completely agree. So, I mean, I generally frame... So we've certainly seen people who've had the COVID jab 
um, who it's exacerbated their COVID symptoms. And that sort of makes sense because people, there's a debate about whether it's a, an immune phenomenon, really, why it's happening to some people or not. Um, so therefore being exposed to any kind of protein would then stimulate a sort of similar immune response. So um, that generally seems to get better, though. So even if you've had a jab and they get exacerbated and the symptoms like does get better again with time and the same management. Um, what I generally said to people is, look, you, this is how you've been after an acute infection. Do you want to end up potentially going backwards to the same state you were before you got COVID? Because if you got COVID again, we don't know. We can't predict whether you're going to get another flare or this is going to happen again to you. Um, and I think it's beneficial to everybody. So I recommend everyone has the jab, mm. really. There seems to be a difference in what jab they get. Um, no matter whether it's AstraZeneca, Pfizer, or Moderna, they all seem to sometimes get an exacerbation, possibly. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's safe. And then there's a question about long COVID due to the vaccine. Um, I don't think there's very much data on it, to be honest. Um, there's sort of anecdotal reports of people getting long COVID after vaccine. But I don't think the number of cases we see necessarily sort of reflect a big concern about that necessarily. Okay. And does this, having this vaccination, uh, would that prevent people from getting long COVID? I mean, I suppose like if, the, if it prevents a serious infection. Yes, I guess we'll tell with time because vaccines happen much later. So um, we're still sort of seeing some patients who had COVID in the first wave being referred to us. We're still seeing some patients referred from the second wave to us. Vaccinations really started sort of in the second wave, of, I think, really timeline-wise. So we'd have to see really looking at the dates of who's referred. And I think that data is still going to be, be known. Um, we certainly do see people who've got symptoms from COVID prolonged, but actually they do seem to be really a bit milder. So I think anecdotally, it probably does prevent some people. I think some people may not, may still get it. But yeah, I think we're still learning a lot as, as we are about every aspect of this really. I think it's fair to say that things are not black and white when it comes to long COVID. But if it was me presenting, I would just make things more grey for you. So we heard some really sensible things, I believe, such as not necessarily needing a positive COVID test to make a diagnosis that long COVID is considered a diagnosis of exclusion, and when you might refer to a long COVID clinic. Although it'd be nice to have a baseline protocol for primary care, this is impossible because presentation varies so much, and it does make sense, as Dr. Ainley said, to listen carefully to the patient and then let that guide our approach. Then there are things we just don't know, such as the role of vaccination in terms of either contributing to or saving us from long COVID. The truth is that, unlike, say, smallpox, which has existed for 3,000 years, long COVID has just been born, so it's no surprise that there are so many things we just don't know about it yet. In fact, being so new, you might learn things about it that no one else has. So if you do know something, contact the leads, as in the episode description, and that way you may just be contributing to our collective understanding of the condition. Well, that's it for today. But do keep a lookout for our next episode on long COVID, which is going to be more about what the patient and others can do to manage this condition. We do believe that a multi-professional approach involving the clinician and others and the patient to manage this will allow us to get the best outcomes. And it's also about how we approach the consultation. Today, we focused more on the clinical content. But if this topic can feel like a heart sink to some of us, imagine how it must feel to the patient.
In fact, it just so happens that I'm in the process just now of recording our next episode on our sister podcast, Primary Care UK, where we're looking at the power of language in consultation. So you might want to check that out as well. We hope that you're finding these podcasts informative and educational and that they help us develop as a primary care community. Please do, as always, send us your feedback and suggestions by following the link in the notes section of the podcast. But until next time, keep well and keep safe. This podcast was provided by Northeast London Training Council. Please note that clinical advice and any other information provided in this podcast is both time and location specific and is general rather than specific, and no guarantee can be provided with respect to its accuracy. Practitioners should refer to appropriate specialists for advice about individual patient care and should use their professional judgment when using the information provided in any way. For more about this, refer to the disclaimer in the episode description. Thank you for listening.